Welcome to For Future Reference, a podcast from Institute for the Future. I'm Mark Frauenfelder. I'm joined by my colleague, David Peskovitz. Hey, David. Hey, Mark. Really excited about uh, today's interview with Bob Johansson, a distinguished fellow and uh, a researcher who's been at IFTF for, I think it's about 30 plus years now. He knows a lot of the original crew, like Paul Barron, one of the pioneers of the internet. Yeah, Bob was actually uh, uh, led the first uh, social science research on the internet back when it was still the ARPANET, and they were looking at uh, how people would use it uh, for human communication and chat, which was a very unexpected uh, uh, application of the technology at the time. And he's gone on to do many amazing pioneering projects at the intersection of, of sociology and technology. Um, and he's written quite a few books, which is why uh, Bob's joining us today. Yeah, he's got a new book out called The New Leadership Literacies, Thriving in a Future of Extreme Disruption and Distributed Everything. David and I had a great time talking to Bob about the five ways that current and future leaders are going to be able to take their own leap into the future. I'm Bob Johansson. I'm an Institute for the Future, and I've got a new book called The New Leadership Literacies. The book is for leaders, rising star leaders, board members, uh, human resources people, uh, for anyone who's interested in or would like to be a leader, but more importantly, not just leaders, but leadership since I think increasingly um, it's not just about leaders, it's about leadership. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between leaders and leadership, why it's important to make that distinction? We used to focus on the leader and in these new organizational forms, what I call shape-shifting organizations, there's clearly no center. Uh, they grow from the edges, they can't be controlled, and hierarchies come and go. So the leadership has to be shape-shifting in order to be able to lead these kinds of organizations. So you can still designate leaders, and certainly at certain times you have leaders that are visible. But leaders are always shape-shifting, just like the organization is shape-shifting. Bob, when, when you, when, you know, you five, five years ago, uh, your last book came out, Leaders Make the Future, and in it, you had, um, you know, a, a series of interesting leadership skills that that came out of um, yours and I, IFTF's uh, research, uh, looking ten years out. Um, what inspired you, or why did you feel the time was right to to update those? How are the literacies different now than they were five years ago? Yeah, um, so leaders make the future. Um, is out in two editions, um, and it's it's done very well. It's sold over 100,000 copies, and it's used around the world. And it's focused on these 10 future leadership skills. And I have convinced myself and tested, I think those are the right skills. But what I've realized as I've done that work um, is that skills aren't enough and that you really need a wrapper around the skills. And that's what I'm calling a literacy. Uh, so it's a worldview, a discipline, a way of thinking that includes skills, but is looking with a wider lens at the kind of leadership that would be needed. So 
the new book, The New Leadership Literacy, starts where leaders make the future ended and provides that larger wrapper and the five leadership literacies that I think are necessary to thrive. But the 10 skills are still there. They're just embedded in the literacies. So I think I think that's great. I think, I think though, it would be nice to you know, get a little specific. And, and if you could share some examples of, you know, what do you think are the, are, are your favorite, um, you know, of the future leadership literacies? Yeah. So the quick, the quick overview is the core literacy is looking back from the future, but acting now. And it, it used to be that you could get away as a leader by just being action oriented, you know, decide quickly, move quickly. But now, in this kind of highly uncertain world, what the military calls the VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, in a VUCA world, if you're action-oriented alone, you can, be, you can be either dumb or dangerous or both if you have no foresight. So you really need that, that leadership literacy of looking back from the future. Uh, then once you have that grounding, you're kind of used to thinking foresight, inside action in continuing cycles. Then you need to learn the skills of gaming, the skills of simulation, the skills of what I call voluntary fear exposure. That's the larger literacy. And the kids have a big competitive advantage over us in that space. And that allows you to practice your leadership literacies in low-risk ways to lead what I call shape-shifting organizations. And that's the literacy of, of leadership for these organizations that have no center, grow from the edges, and can't be controlled. And, of course, they're very distributed because in this world, anything that can be distributed will be distributed. So as a leader, most of today's leaders are really good in person, but when they get physically separated, they degrade. And in this new world, you're going to have to be better when you're not there. And most of today's leaders are great in person, but they degrade when they're not there physically. But in this increasingly distributed world, in a world where anything that can be distributed will be distributed, you're going to have to be constantly in touch. You're going to have to be constantly close, but not too close. <laughs> and that's really the challenge is how can you be connected and linked with distributed workers, but not be kind of looking over their shoulder. And then finally, to thrive in this kind of VUCA world, you need to create positive energy, to create and sustain positive energy. So you need to be physically mentally, and even spiritually, although not necessarily religiously, even spiritually grounded in the face of the VUCA world. So leaders have to bring that energy and sustain that energy and to provide a sense of realistic hope in an increasingly frightening future. So it's a real challenge just to figure out how to do that. But that's the cycle of the literacies that I'm thinking about, looking back from the future but acting now, voluntary fear exposure, leadership for shape-shifting organizations, being there when you're not there, and finally creating and sustaining positive energy. One of the things that you bring up in the new leadership literacies is the difference between clarity and certainty. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I've spent a, a lot of time since 
9-11, uh, working with senior military leaders. And uh, this is striking, and it was life-changing for me because I was not a military guy. But what I've learned from them is they are way ahead of us in business at understanding these shape-shifting organizations because, unfortunately, um, the criminals, the terrorists, are much better at shape-shifting organizations than we are. So what the military's learned is that what wins in this VUCA world dealing with these shape-shifting organizations that are challenging them, not playing by the rules, not clearly identified with states in many cases, what works is to be very clear about direction but very flexible about execution. And the military actually has quite a sophisticated language for this. They call it commander's intent or mission command, or the latest term is flexive command, where you're continuously reassessing who's in the best position to make which decision at what time. So clarity, clarity of direction, is really important to win in this kind of world. On the other hand, certainty is too brittle. And most hierarchies, most command and control structures are just too brittle to be able to compete, um, let alone win, with these shape-shifting organizations. So the way I say it is the future, this future that we're all facing, whether we like it or not, will reward clarity, but it will punish, punish certainty. It's interesting when you think of the military that they're, they're very hierarchical, very structured, uh, you might even say brittle, and it's interesting that they're leading the way in this kind of flexive command. What did you learn from from hanging out with the military about how you could turn around an organization so that it could behave in a way that can constantly optimize for little changes like that and be more flexive? What's what's like the first thing that an organization could do to get on that track? Well, the first lesson for me, and again, I'm not an expert in the military. I'm not from that background. But what they tell me is that their transformation from being command and control began in the Vietnam War. So it's a very long transition. Um, and the challenge for all of us is figuring out what we need to do to compete in the environments we're facing. And they've gradually faced up to this. So there still is a conventional army that's hierarchical. But now there's also a special forces that is much more shape-shifting. And what you can do as an organization is figure out, first of all, what is your competitive climate? If you're lucky enough to be in a predictable competitive environment where you have a pretty good idea what's going to happen and you can extrapolate from the present, you can stick with hierarchy, you can stick with command and control, but there just aren't very many places like that anymore. So you have to begin this process of creating your own version of the special forces, your own version of shape-shifting organizations. And, you know, here in Silicon Valley, we call that rapid prototyping. That's one of the future leadership skills. You have to learn how to fail early, fail often, fail cheaply. But you also need to protect those organizations that are very good at that. And you need to spread that kind of leadership ability across the organization. Bob, are there examples of organizations um, that, you know, perhaps you worked with them and perhaps you haven't, but that you feel have done a good job putting these literacies into practice uh, 
outside of, say, the military? Sure. Um, so I would say most large corporations have portions of their organizations that practice at least one of these literacies pretty well. You know, for example, I work with one of the world's largest consultancies. And when I talk to them about shape-shifting organizations, um, the first thing one of their senior partners said was, oh, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> and, you know, he's right in a way. Um, what I haven't seen is any company that practices all five of these literacies across the whole company. And that's the challenge, is how can you take those pockets of innovation, which are present in any large organization, and then spread them? And mostly, that's going to be motivated by competition. If your survival is threatened, you're more likely to see the kind of fundamental shift that's going to be needed um, if you're facing competitors like you've never seen before, like is very typical here in Silicon Valley, that's one of the reasons why Silicon Valley is so innovative, is because the, there's a constant assumption of turmoil, a constant assumption. You know, we're, we're right on the edge of the world's biggest earthquake fault. There's a constant assumption of looming disaster. And that, I think, forces people to be constantly innovative. So you'll see pockets of these literacies in many places, but what you won't see, and what I haven't found yet, is an organization that pulls that all together and that spreads that. And that's our challenge over the next decade. How do you, so I think that that's an interesting point, especially because even when at IFTF and, and you know, with Mark, obviously, his connection to the maker movement, and we were looking at, um, the future of making within organizations, um, you know, sort of grassroots innovation, a, the biggest challenge always seemed to be, you know, that, that, that kind of innovation or that kind of R and D was almost, you know, put on an Island, the R and D Island within an organization, you know, and, and they could be great at doing that, but what they really needed was this kind of mindset throughout the entire organization. And when you're talking about companies that have, you know, 30,000 employees, um, you know, it's a big challenge. I mean, as you said, how how do you think we can, you know, how how do you go about trying to foster that in an organization of that size? So I'm working now, a lot of what I do is custom forecasts, where we take our foundational forecasts and apply them and say, what are the four or five big external future forces most likely to disrupt your business. And most of those companies I work with are not just 30,000, they're hundreds of thousands. In one case, more than a million employees. So the scale is incredible. Uh, the good news is we've got better ability to scale now than we've ever had. And the world of innovation. You know, what happens in these shape-shifting organizations is the innovation happens at the edges. That's where diversity flourishes, where innovation flourishes. And what you want to do is seed that interest and seed that sense of innovation. And the maker instinct's basic to this. Um, that's one of the 10 future leadership skills. So you want to seed that, uh, not only allow that, but encourage that. But then... The challenge of leadership is how to scale it, how to scale it in such a way that you can spread that innovation spirit 
more widely across the whole organization. And there's a number of new models for how you do that, but clearly in shape-shifting organizations, um, this is getting too complicated for a single leader. You need a model of leadership that distributes leadership, that rewards distributed leadership, that acknowledges that anything that can be distributed will be distributed, and then spreads, scales. And, and the neat thing about the next generation internet, it's going to allow us to scale. It's going to allow us to scale in ways we've never been able to scale before because the, you know, the core technology of the internet is what Paul Barron um, originally called hot potato rooting. <laughs> and it, you know, it, you know, it came to be called packet switching. What a boring name. But he called it hot potato rooting. And that's what allows us to scale is this new ability to be digitally connected with a next generation internet that allows hot potato rooting to connect these shape-shifting organizations. And this goes back to clarity. The leadership has to provide great clarity about direct, uh, direction, but great flexibility about execution. Amazing. You know, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the different kinds of, of <laughs> leaders today. Um, before we started recording, um, Mark was talking a little bit about, about Martha Stewart and Stephen Colbert. Um, and, and that, you know, provoked a really interesting response from you, Mark, what, what was that you were talking about? I've been on the Martha Stewart show and I've been on the Stephen Colbert show a couple of times. And so I spent a lot of time prepping for for the show with the staff and both Martha Stewart and Stephen Colbert would check in from time to time and, and I would speak to them, but I just observed the way that the, the staff of each of these super famous celebrities handled them. And with Martha Stewart, there was a very strong dose of, of strong respect, but also there, there was fear. Uh, they, they were like really worried about what she was going to think about this. You know, she's not going to like this. So she, with, with Colbert, there was like very strong respect and also love. People lit up when he got there. They talked great things about him. The way he engaged with the, the people was was wonderful. I mean, they're both super successful, so maybe those both of those things work. But I, you know, felt a lot more comfortable around Colbert's crew. Um, and so I know Bob. Then, then you kind of responded to that about um, about leadership in, in an interesting way. So I'd love to hear your take on what we were talking about. I think celebrity is a wild card variable. And it affects people in different ways that have a high impact, but are very difficult to predict. So a couple of celebrity leaders I've been around, Dee Hawk was the uh, founder of Visa International. Um, and he described the organization which he created as chaotic. He said it's part chaos and part order. And leaders decide when to play which card. So you could decide when to invoke chaos, when to invoke or order. I, I think love and fear kind of play into that variable, too. Um, we also uh, uh, shared an office or an office complex with Bill Walsh at the time he was leading the 49ers when, back when they were a great team. Uh, and he talked about the same thing. But what he said is you have to have urgent patience. 
uh, you have to decide when to push the urgency when people are getting too complacent and when to push the patients. And, you know, he notoriously dressed up as a bellboy uh, and at the Super Bowl and kind of welcomed people on the bus until somebody finally recognized him. That was very out of character because at other times he would be very fear invoking. So celebrity, though, is a is just a giant wild card. And I think in this world, the um, the idea of celebrity leadership is just going to become much less prominent. There still will be celebrity leaders, uh, the rock star leaders, but they won't last long because they're so easy to criticize on in this intense social media world, even if the criticism is unfair. So we'll still have rock star leaders. They just won't last long. And what I think will be sustainable are strong leaders who are also humble. I think humility is going to get rewarded in this world in the long run. And strength is going to have to be there, especially during this VUCA world moments. But when do you play which card? When do you play the fear card? When do you play the love card? When do you play the chaos card? When do you play the order card? When do you play the patience card? When do you play the urgency card? Those are the kind of dilemmas of leadership that it will be increasingly important. But I think in general, this idea of celebrity is becoming uh, much cheaper. I mean, it's possible it's possible to become a celebrity in a social media world um, much more quickly than it used to be. But it's also very fragile. Um, so the old uh, everybody has their moments of fame kind of line, uh, you know, that's more true, I think, in a social media world or in a shape-shifting organization's world. But I do think this notion of celebrity is just uh, is just so, so, so fragile. Um, and if you come back to, well, what are the leadership qualities you want to go for? You want to look for leaders who have strength but also have humility. I have a, another question for you, Bob. What have you learned about dilemmas and how successful leaders in a VUCA world handle them? Yeah. Um, so I distinguish between uh, problems, which are, are challenges you can actually solve, and dilemmas, which are problems you can't solve. They won't go away, but you have to figure out how to win anyway. If you don't know if you're dealing with a problem or a dilemma, you're better off assuming it's a dilemma because if in the end you can solve it, you just get extra credit. But if you but if you call something a problem and it turns out to be a dilemma, you'll never be forgiven. So the Obama administration um, talked about health care as if it was a problem. And it's not. It's a dilemma. <laughs> you can improve health care in the United States. You cannot solve it. Um, and they made, I think, a big mistake using problem solver language. Uh, and we're still paying the price because they were getting evaluated unfairly, I think, in many cases, uh, because it wasn't a problem you could solve. They may have made it better. I think they did. But they get no credit for it because they didn't they didn't solve it. And just to link this back to celebrity, I, I played college basketball at Illinois in the Big Ten, and I was an all-state high school player. And when I um, 
got my first varsity games, we, we traveled, we had our own plane, we had two sports writers with us all the time. And when I first got on, on the team, I was playing a lot. Uh, and these two sports writers are like my best friends. Um, and, and then suddenly, because I wasn't a great player, I was a marginal Big Ten player, not good enough to play in the pros. So then rather suddenly, I wasn't playing. And the sports writers stopped talking to me. <laughs> and, I, and I was from this little town in Illinois. And I said, whoa, wait a minute. Those are my friends. Uh, how, how could they stop talking to me? And then I realized no, no, they're not your friends. They're only your friends when you're playing well. And that, to me, was a dilemma. I just realized I'm not going to solve this problem. And I've got this fragile thing called celebrity, and I'm this all-state basketball player. But, hey, there's 12 all-state basketball players on the Illinois team, and we weren't even the best in the Big Ten. <laughs> so, so I suddenly had this giant dilemma, and I suddenly had to realize, you know, I needed another identity um, beyond being a basketball player. And I needed to make my peace with the fact that celebrity is just so fragile. And, and to me, that's one of the best things about my kind of marginal basketball career is I got a taste of celebrity, but I also saw how, how fragile and how superficial celebrity actually is. Bob, you talked about the the Silicon Valley sort of be, always being in this experience of this looming catastrophe. Um, you know, is the bubble going to burst? Is like the headline every other week. Um, you know, it, you spend most of your time thinking about the future. Are you optimistic? Um, you know, I've been doing this thirty plus years now. This is the most frightening forecast I've ever been involved in, and. And it's the most optimistic. So it's like the stakes are up. We've, and, and it links to the same variable, this variable of connectivity, this variable of super connectivity, this variable of hot potato rooting, that very connectivity that gives me hope also provides the fear. And if you bring that in with the rich poor gap, which I think is the kind of looming challenge of our of our period. And you've got a generation of young people coming up now that grew up with digital media. And we used to have this quaint notion of a rich-poor gap uh, where rich people had access to tech and poor people didn't. If you look 10 years ahead, even if you're hungry, even if you're hopeless, even if you're homeless, you're going to have pretty good connectivity. So link this back now to whether I'm optimistic or not. If you're a young person coming into adulthood and you're hopeful and digitally connected, you're inspiring. You know, that's what drives the valley and what drives innovation spirit. If you're a young person who's hopeless and digitally connected, you're dangerous. You're a candidate for a terrorist group. So this challenge that we're facing, we're at the cusp of incredible optimism, and we're in the cusp of incredible danger. So yes, I'm optimistic, but it's in the context of this VUCA world that I think we have to face up to. And if we do face up to it, we're going to be able to thrive. It's not at all hopeless, but it does require that we face up to the VUCA world and figure out how to win in that kind of world anyway and figure out how to not just win for ourselves, 
but win in a much wider way than we've been able to win in the past. Bob, thanks so much for for the conversation today. You're welcome. This whole idea of leadership in the next decade is, to me, such such an important space for us all to be concerned about, and I really appreciate the, the conversation. You've been listening to For Future Reference. Bob Johansson's new book, The New Leadership Literacies, is available at bookstores and online everywhere. If you'd like more information about Bob's work and the research of Institute for the Future, visit www.iftf.org. To find out more about Bob Johansson's new book, The New Leadership Literacies, go to www.thenewleadershipliteracies.org. You'll also be able to see a two-minute video introducing the book. The music for this podcast was composed by Greg Fleischett.